Last week, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration announced that March 2023 was Earth's second warmest March in 174 years. According to their data, the average global and ocean surface temperature for March was 2.23 degrees Fahrenheit above the 20th century average of 54.9 degrees. And the only year to have a warmer March since 1850 was 2016. They went on to announce that March 2023 also was the 47th consecutive March and the 529th consecutive month with temperatures above the 20th century average. Their announcement comes just nine days before the 53rd national, or I should say international, observance of Earth Day. Since 1970, April 22nd has been observed as Earth Day, which is a day to demonstrate support for environmental protection. Just five weeks ago, on March 11th, 2023, more than 40 members of our congregation participated in an annual watershed cleanup effort along the Chattahoochee River known as Sweep the Hooch. A total of 600 pounds of trash was removed by our group from a portion of the riverbank and the woodlands that pass here through Sugar Hill. With another climate change announcement, which seems to come every week, an upcoming day dedicated to environmentalism and a recent service project that contributed to an environmental cause, I decided it might be appropriate to consider what the Bible has to say about the Christian's responsibility to the environment. Now, I realize this isn't a subject that you just got all excited about all of a sudden. I realize that you didn't wake up this morning coming to worship and think, man, we really need to talk about the environment. I realize that on the scale of spiritual concerns, this ranks fairly low. But it's my job as a communicator of God's Word to present the whole counsel of God. And sometimes that means addressing topics that aren't of chief importance to most people. So this morning, we're going to spend some time talking about the theology of ecology. Now, ecology is a fancy word. It means the study of relationships between living organisms and their physical environment. You and I are living organisms, and ecology is the study of our relationship to our environment. And it rhymes with theology, so it makes for a great sermon title. Let's be honest, that's the real reason. Now, I know most of you are thinking, why should we even care about the environment? The Bible declares that everything on this earth is going to be burned up one day anyway, so why should it matter? But just because this earth will cease to exist one day, that does not mean that we do not have a biblical responsibility toward it. Our bodies will cease to exist one day, but God expects us to take care of them since they are a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. So this morning, I want us to investigate what the Bible says about the Christian's relationship to the environment. And I want to begin by considering why we should even care about the environment. And I believe there are three basic reasons. Number one, I believe we should care about the environment because God created it. In the very first verse of the Bible, we read, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. 
The remainder of Genesis 1 describes how God created the atmosphere, the land, the sea, and all of its inhabitants, the animals, the plants, and humans. Then after each day of creation, God reflected on what he had made and declared it to be good. As a result, our environment is inherently valuable. God created it, and God pronounced it to be good. Those two facts ought to awaken a sense of appreciation for creation because we esteem the work of our Father. And if we're going to approach environmental concerns, not just logically and practically, but also biblically, we have to ask the basic question, to whom does the earth belong? Not only is the answer given in Genesis chapter 1, but it's bolstered by other verses throughout Scripture. For instance, Psalm chapter 24 and verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. That's pretty clear cut. The earth belongs to God. In addition, we can go over to Psalm chapter 50 where God himself declares, Every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. God declares in Psalm 50 that all of creation is owned by him. You see, nature has value in and of itself because God created it, and therefore God owns it. Nature's value is intrinsic. It will not change because its value is based on who owns it. And so we should care about the environment because God created it and therefore God owns it. But we should also care about the environment for other reasons. For instance, we should care about the environment because God cares about the environment. This is easily overlooked because you really have to spend some time in the Old Testament. See, God's care for the environment is evident through laws he implemented that protect the environment. If you journey through the books of Deuteronomy and Leviticus in particular, you'll discover the following commands. According to Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 13 and 14, in an explanation of the Sabbath observance, the Israelites were instructed to let the animals rest on the seventh day. Not just the people, but the animals. That was part of their Sabbath observance every week. And then in Leviticus chapter 25, verses 3 through 7, the Israelites were required to let the land rest every seventh year. These commands, the command for animals to rest every seventh day and for the land to rest every seventh year, they protected those resources from being overused and allowed them time to replenish themselves just as we need time to replenish ourselves. Then you can go over to Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 4, where God instructed the Israelites to not muzzle an ox when it's treading out the grain. Essentially, this policy was to allow that animal, as it worked, to be able to eat some of the produce that it was helping to create. And what's interesting is this very statement ends up making its way into the New Testament as a, a premise for people, you can find it referenced in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 9, as well as in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 18. The idea is the worker deserves his wages. And in this context, it was the 
ox deserving his by way of grains he could eat as he worked. Then you go over to Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 19 and 20, where the Israelites are instructed to not strip the land of its vegetation when warring with another country. Instead of just demolishing the land, they're instructed to allow those trees which bore fruit to remain. This ended up protecting a region's food sources and prevented erosion. And finally, in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 6 and 7, the Israelites are instructed not to take both the mother bird and her eggs if they came across a nest. Now, this is a command in Mosaic law, the same law that tells us to not murder, to not commit adultery, to not lie. And if you continue through that law, you're going to come across one that says, don't take a mother bird and her eggs. And what God was doing was protecting a species from extinction. So God demonstrated his care for creation by dictating how it is to be used and how it is to be protected through various laws such as these. And the thing is, God God really does care about his creation. And his care for his creation is so great that Jesus used it to illustrate how much God cares about you and about me. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 26 through 30, Jesus, in effect, said, Do you want to know how much God cares about you? Just look at how much he cares about the birds, and look at how much he cares about the flowers. He cares about you even more. So if God cares this much about the environment, then shouldn't we as Christians who are on this earth to represent him care about the environment as well? There is one other reason I think we should care about the environment. And it's because the environment provides evidence of God's existence. Scripture declares that the natural world can reveal something about God to unbelievers. The psalmist said in Psalm chapter 96, 97 and verse 6, the heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the people see his glory. And Paul stated in Romans chapter 1 and verse 20 that God's invisible attributes, particularly his eternal power and divine nature, they have been revealed to, to humankind ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made in creation itself. In our environment, these passages indicate that creation possesses the power to proclaim God's presence to people. As those tasked with the mission of telling the world about God, we should care about the environment because it provides proof of his existence. So because God created the environment, and because God cares for the environment, and because the environment gives evidence of God's existence, right then and there are three reasons why we should start caring about the environment as well. But what should our care look like? See, when God created mankind, he said in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, let us make man in our image, and let, him, let them 
have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Then he went on to instruct the first man and women to fill the earth and subdue it. The Hebrew terms translated have dominion and subdue refer to rulership and subjugation. In other words, God indicated his intent for creation was for it to be under our authority. One of the psalmists summarized it well when he said in Psalm chapter 115 and verse 16, the highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth, the earth he has given to mankind. What's being communicated is stewardship. We don't own the earth. God owns it. But it has been stewarded to us, just like our finances and our bodies. A steward is a person who manages another's property or financial affairs, one who administers anything as the agent of another. And so we need to look at creation as something God has asked us, empowered us, commanded of us to steward. But what does that look like? We often talk about stewardship in the term of, terms of our finances, and we have a pretty good grasp of what that entails most of the time. But what does it mean to be a steward of creation? Well, I believe environmental stewardship means using it, using creation. Man's dominion over the earth includes using it for sustenance and for its resources. For example, God authorized both the use of vegetation and animals as sources of food for man. God told the first humans in Genesis chapter 1, verse 29 through 30, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. So right there in the first chapter of the Bible, we're told that all vegetation can be used for our sustenance. But then we get over to Genesis chapter 9, and you look at verse 2 and 3. This is after the flood. Noah and his family are, are, are leaving the ark, and this instruction is given to them. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. And so in Genesis chapter 9, God authorizes all creatures to be sustenance for us. Now, I have to admit, I'm not a fan of eating all creatures. There's plenty of bugs out there I want nothing to do with, though Glenn Ramsey might. But God has said, hey, all of these created animals and all of these created plants are for your use. Not only that, but if we journey throughout the Bible, you'll notice that after Adam and Eve sinned, they realized they were naked and they were ashamed. So God authorized the use of animals for clothing when he personally outfitted Adam and Eve with garments of skin there in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 21. And you can go through the Bible and you'll see a number of occupations that harvest the earth's resources as mentioned. 
There's farming, which was Cain's occupation. There's shepherding, which was Abel's occupation and Jacob's occupation and David's occupation. Esau was a notable hunter. Several of the apostles were fishermen. And one particular Simon, in whose house Peter resided while living in Joppa, was a tanner, which means he converted animal hides into leather for a living. You can also see reference to the timber industry, which contributed to the construction of the first temple by Solomon, who ordered that the city, cedars of Lebanon be cut for it in 1 Kings chapter 5 and verse 6. It's also evident that the timber industry was involved in the reconstruction of that very temple by Nehemiah, who was given a letter from King Artaxerxes authorizing him to receive timber from the king's forest to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for his personal house, according to Nehemiah chapter 2 and verse 8. And the mining of precious metals is implied throughout the Bible. Iron and copper are identified as part of the bounty of the promised land that the Lord was giving to the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 9. Gold, silver, copper, and gemstones were expected to be contributed by the Israelites for use in the construction and decoration of the tabernacle and its furnishings, according to Exodus chapter 25. And our description of heaven employs these same materials, silver, gold, gemstones, to describe its streets, its walls, its gates, and its foundations, according to Revelation chapter 21. And all of these references reveal that the earth and its resources were designed by God for our use. In other words, from a theological perspective, the earth is indeed subservient to us. The earth and its resources are designed for our use. But even though the Bible asserts that the earth was designed for our use, it also indicates that we are responsible for using it appropriately. And that means environmental stewardship means not abusing creation. In Leviticus chapter 26, God warned the Israelites of the consequences that would ensue if they failed to be obedient to his commands. Now, a little bit ago, we read some of the commands God gave that related to the environment. One of the passages we read was from Leviticus chapter 25, the chapter immediately before Leviticus 26. In Leviticus chapter 26, beginning in verse 14, God said, But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. And from verse 16 through verse 33, God's going to list a whole bunch of consequences. Now, I want you to scan those passages with me because amidst, amidst those, pa those verses, several environmental consequences are mentioned. They include in verse 16, you shall sow your seed in vain for your enemies shall eat it. And in verse 19 and 20, God says, I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. Your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. Then in verse 22, God says, I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock. If you continue on to verse 25, God says, I will send pestilence among you. And finally, in verse 32 and 33, he says, I myself will devastate the land and your land shall be a desolation. There were environmental 
commands in Mosaic law, and there were environmental consequences in Mosaic law. And God concluded this consequence section by indicating that Israel's disobedience would eventually lead to their exile. But most relevant to this lesson, God indicated that their exile would allow the environment which they abused to recover. So look at verse 34 and 35 of Leviticus chapter 26. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate. While you are in your enemy's land, then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbath. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest, the rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. This is part of the consequence that gets overlooked because we just brush aside the environmental stuff. It's not that big of a deal, but it's present all throughout Mosaic law, just as commands like not killing one another are present all throughout Mosaic law. And guess what? All of this came to fruition. 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 20 through 21 records that he, a reference to King Nebuchadnezzar, took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. Until, until, look, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. Is that not interesting? That God used the exile of the Israelites to let his creation recover. Does that really matter to us, though? I mean, think about it. There are no uh, repeated commands from Mosaic law regarding the environment in the New Testament. And even the consequences identified in Mosaic law don't find their way over to the New Testament. While they may not be in the New Testament, their presence in the Old Testament demonstrates at the very least God's great concern for how we use the earth. And at the very most, the environmental accountability that God will expect of all of us when we stand before his throne. See, as Christians, we should care about the environment because we are stewards of creation. And as Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 2, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Now, I want you to understand, I'm not advocating for a political cause. I'm not even advocating for an environmental cause. I'm not trying to get you to go out and hug a tree. I'm not trying to get you to go out and convert your car to a Tesla. But if you want to convert mine, that's fine with me. I have no objective here other than to look at what the Bible has to say about this issue. And to get us to understand that stewardship may be more than we realize sometimes. But there is one other thing that applies to stewardship when it comes to the environment. That is, environmental stewardship means not elevating creation. 
One of the chief problems most Christians have with environmental issues is that the environment tends to get deified. When we allow creation to become a god in and of itself, we adopt a form of theology known as pantheism. When we start looking at nature as Mother Earth and we put it in the context of it itself being a god, we engage in pantheism. In the simplest of terms, pantheism is the belief that God is identical with the cosmos. In other words, pantheism says that creation is the manifestation of God. The earth and its resources and everything in it are God. That's pantheism. And you know what that means? That means pantheism is idolatry. See, the problem with a pantheistic worldview is that it elevates the created to a position equal to or greater than the creator. And that is the very essence of idolatry. So if you go back to Romans chapter 1, we reference verse 20, where it tells us that God's invisible attributes have been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. But if you keep reading that text, you'll see that Paul goes on to call those who have rejected God fools because they have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, they started worshiping creation. You keep reading and they, you find out they also exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Any time that which has been created usurps the creator, you have an idol problem. And back in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, Paul said that those who replace the creator with the created will be subject to the wrath of God. We must remember that creation is not as great as the Creator. The author of Hebrews, quoting from Psalm chapter 102, made this point quite well when he wrote these words in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10 through 12. He said, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment that will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. The point is that while creation is temporary, God is eternal and therefore superior. And so our stewardship of creation must not lead to the worship of it. Additionally, creation must not be elevated to a position greater than man. As has already been mentioned, the physical world is destined for annihilation, but the souls of mankind are not. While 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10 says that the heavens and the earth will be destroyed, you have to balance that with 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51 through 54, which declares that we as mortals will put on immortality. That means that creation will end, but our existence will continue into perpetuity. And according to Matthew chapter 25 and verse 46, that perpetual existence will either be spent in a new heaven and a new earth where we will experience eternal life, or it will be spent in hell where we will experience eternal punishment. 
And the point is that since creation is temporary, but our souls are eternal, then stewardship of creation must not come at the expense of the stewardship of salvation. The stewardship of creation must not lead to the worship of it, and the stewardship of creation must not come at the expense of the stewardship of salvation. So we must be careful with our stewardship of the environment not to elevate it. I'm going to repeat. I understand this is not the most life-changing lesson you've ever heard from a pulpit. I understand that this message is more than likely not changing your world that incredibly much. But if we're going to be faithful to the Lord, we need to be attentive to everything that he said in his word. And he did have some things to say about our relationship to the environment. It's my hope today that you have a greater appreciation because the goal of this sermon is simply to provide a biblical basis for why Christians should care about the environment so that we'll seek to be faithful stewards in all things that pertain to life and godliness. See, God owns it all. Whether it's your physical body, your, your, your finances, the words that come out of your mouth, God owns it all. The real question today is, are you willing to surrender to his lordship over every aspect of your life? And are you willing to be a good steward of everything that he has put into your life? This morning, if you reflect on yourself, regardless of whether it has anything to do with the environment and the earth, if you reflect on yourself and realize you're not being the steward you ought to be, then we invite you to come and correct that. If you look at your life and you realize that God has blessed you tremendously, but you've never surrendered your life to him and you've never put on Christ in baptism, then we invite you to come and make that decision. Wherever you're at in your life right now, this is an opportunity this is an opportunity to declare God in heaven as the Lord of your life. If you have any need to respond to this invitation, we invite you to come while together we stand and sing. Oh!